What it does is it basically says that if a church were to disappear, if we count all the good they do in the community, it would take the taxpayer $3.77 for every dollar that was receded on a church budget to simply replace the goods and services that churches provide to their communities. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me in conversation, the Executive Vice President of Cardis, Ray Pennings. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Ray, I understand you studied quite a bit of history in your university days. If there was one topic that you could uh, talk me off the ledge for hours and hours, what would it be? I actually, uh, Renaissance, Reformation, history, and political thought, sort of the origins of the ideas as they worked their way from the Renaissance through the uh, Reformation into the Enlightenment, that period of time. Lots, probably more political theory and theology than actual history, but um, I have a collection of a good number of books on that topic and uh, enjoy talking about it at great lengths. (laughs) Do you have a favorite person, figure from that time period as well? It's interesting, sort of trace, in terms of personality, Martin Luther obviously is a bombastic, polemic, exciting sort of person, but I was, um, Calvin was much more the systematic thinker, and then Calvin had somebody named Johannes Althusius, who's a little less known, but he's probably the father of federalism, and most federal systems of government trace their intellectual thoughts back to uh, 16th century Calvinism which is a surprise to many. Hmm. Let's dive into your thinking, this this mind that you have, and uh, being a part of the, the start of what you work for today. What is what is CARDIS, first of all? CARDIS is a think tank, and um, think tanks are a little more common in the U.S. than in Canada, but there are about 50 of them in Canada. Uh, essentially, we're a university without students. We do research into all sorts of areas. But I would also say we're a translation society. We take data, we take research, and we convert them into practical policy implications that are useful in the political sphere, but also in the business, economic, uh, social sphere as well of society. So um, it's really about collecting data, doing research, making arguments, and making them available for others to use in the public square. And you were part of Cardis right from the very beginning. I'm the co-founder of Cardis. I got involved in politics in my early teens, spent uh, the better part of 20 years sort of in the political back rooms, primarily as a volunteer. I uh, actually worked in the area of labor relations, was working in the back rooms. Essentially, it was uh, in the late 90s when I said to my friend and and partner, uh, Michael Van Pelt, who is the co-founder of Cardis with me, He had been elected to office in similar sort of pattern in the back rooms of politics. And we basically concluded that we had become fairly adept at the political game, but many of the people we were sending into office who were winning were not necessarily achieving the sorts of impact that we were hoping for. And we we sort of realized that it's one thing to win an election, it's quite another to equip those who are leaders with the tools they need to make a difference and that perhaps we weren't giving them the toolbox they needed. And so we set about to create a think tank, which today is known as CARDIS, uh, where 23 years we started in the fall of 2000. I ran in the 2000 election. The voters decided that uh, a couple thousand of them short uh, in terms of getting me to office. And so I always say CARDIS is the consolation prize. And what about the Christian DNA to this think tank? Why is that important? 
Being involved as a Christian in public life has been part of my DNA since my very beginning. Part of the thinking in the late 90s was that Christians began to be fairly effective at electing uh, people to office. There was a period of time, and arguably, church-attending Christians are overrepresented in Parliament, even to this day, on a per capita basis. You take a look at the number of people who attend church of the overall population, the number who are elected in Parliament, and in part, that reflects strong social networks that do exist within faith communities, which are very effective for electing people. The challenge is sometimes Christian engagement in public life has been focused narrowly on a couple of, you know, hot button moral issues, um, you know, marriage, life issues, those sorts of things. Um, I would argue that a Christian perspective makes a difference on every issue, that there is um, those issues to be sure are important. Uh, and, and family issues, but economic issues, work and vocation. Uh, Cardis does a lot of work, for example, on payday loans. You know, the Bible has a fair bit to say about usury and the lack of available credit to people who fall out of the ordinary banking system. We do a lot of work on lotteries and government's addiction to gambling revenue. We have a whole program called Work is More Than Money that looks at the non-vocational aspects of work and the human dignity that's there. Education, health, you can take a look at all of the issues, and there's something we have to say on all of those issues and not just a couple of hot-button ones. So we thought it was important to equip those who were leaders in the public square, Christians to be sure, but not just Christians, uh, with data and arguments that um, take the wisdom of 2,000 years of Christian social thought and apply them to the issues of the 21st century. Very Luther-esque. You can't separate your faith and your work. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, 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 the Luther's ideas of the priesthood of all believers, you know, his, his sympathy, if you will, for the ordinary worker, and also his sense of urgency. Luther said, you know, even if you knew the Lord was returning to, uh, tomorrow, you need to plant the tree today. Um, there is a sense of vocation that's, that's deeply built in to a reformed, but to be fair, um, there are there are elements in Catholic social thought as well that uh, certainly have threads that need to be pulled through to this day. And how did you gain respect as a think tank, uh, gaining an audience and having credibility in what you're researching? There's so much information out there in this day and age. I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, so the very first memo I wrote a couple of years prior when we started thinking about the idea was that we needed a think tank that was going to be public, credible, and Christian. By public, we meant that our aim was not to talk to people who agreed with us, but to challenge those who disagreed with us. So we were not focusing on the raw, raw, we're right, you're wrong, and winning an argument. I think sometimes in the public square, we think too much of it is about winning the argument. At the end of the day, I think people are formed as much as they are informed. And so our approach an approach of respect, an approach of civility. I think that one of the most foundational principles for a Christian in public life is the fact that we are made in the image of God. That's what gives us dignity and worth. The irony is if I'm made in the image of God and you're made in the image of God, so is the politician who you despise the most, so is your political opponent. And the first thing I should see about them is the image of God in them, because when I disrespect them, I am disrespecting God. Uh, you can't disrespect 
the the work of art without disrespecting the artist. And every individual has dignity and worth. So I think fundamental to our approach has been an approach of respect, an approach of hospitality. Right from the beginning, we have what we call at Cardis the unlikely room. Whenever we hold an event, we very consciously curate the guest list and the invite list, try to make sure that people are in the room who have never spoken to each other before or probably have never met before, and that there is a diversity of opinion. Uh, we just don't invite people who agree with us. We invite people who disagree with us uh, to our events as well. And um, I remember early on, one of the first papers I did, I knew was something that the building trade unions were likely to be critical of. And so I uh, reached out to the president of the building trades unions, gave said, can I give you an advanced copy of the draft of this paper? And I want to pitch it to the national newspaper. And I'm going to put a pitch an op-ed and I want you to write the counter op-ed and we're going to pitch them together. And the result was a, a respectful civil engagement. I knew full well he was going to disagree with my arguments, but giving that sense for here are the pros and cons from both sides. Lay them alongside. And we've been able to do a very significant amount of work in, in that entire area. And that was seeded, I think, by a basic act of respect and civility at the very start that engaged important arguments that needed to be there in a way that was respectful of those who differed. And how would you say you guys stand right now as far as your, your reach, your audience? Uh, you got all the people that you want taking advantage of your stuff? You could ask me... Well, I won't be around in uh, in a hundred years, but um, this is an ongoing work. The issues change on a day by day basis. The players change, uh, so there's always work to be done, and you will never achieve that. I I think you know we have grown. We've been blessed. Uh, we have over forty staff now, and we have seven program areas, and our reach on you know even in terms of direct reach is now you put something out and. You know, it's thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands, in the occasional case, hundreds of thousands of people who uh, read your stuff. But it's an ongoing conversation. It's a dialogue. It's a back and forth. And you never saw it put out something out today, which reflects something today. Someone responds. There's now another iteration of that conversation that goes forward. The issues you read in the newspaper we're talking about today are very different than they were 5, 10, or 20 years ago. And so this is this is an always ongoing process. Let's let's drill down on the research that you've done specifically on spiritual life in Canada. Do you find that uh, there's an abundance of that coming out of the states to a, to a point that we're taking that in and, and applying it to this context in an inaccurate way? Well, there is, although in part that has been because there has been a vacuum of Canadian data. So you take the closest data you have and you extrapolate and apply it to your own circumstance. But we know the United States is very different than Canada. In 2017, on the occasion of Canada's 150th anniversary, we actually approached the government and said, as you're celebrating 150 years of Canadian life, we think it's important that you actually recognize the importance that faith and faith institutions have played in the history of this country. That pitch did not win the day. And part of that project, we entered into a partnership with the Angus Reid Institute, and we created something that we started in 2017 and continue to this day. I think we've done 13 or 14 polls with them now of looking at Canadians in terms of their faith life. So we have collected now what is probably the largest database, having interviewed over 7,000 Canadians with all sorts of ancillary projects around it in terms of different dimensions of their faith life. 
two things. One, usually, and this is true of a lot of the U.S. data as well, people have used church attendance as a proxy for faith life and drawn all sorts of assumptions from that. Well, church attendance in Canada has for several decades already been about half of that in the U.S. Um, In the last seven days, about 12% of Canadians went to a place of worship. About 6% of them were um, Catholic, about 5% Protestant of various stripes, and about 1% every other um, denomination combined. If you would change the metric of that from weekly to monthly church attendance, as many of the polls do these days, you're likely to get numbers in closer to the 16 to 18% range. What we did is say that in itself doesn't tell the whole story. So we decided starting in 2017 through all these polls to ask and measure seven questions. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in an afterlife? Do you educate your children according to a religious code? Have you had a religious experience? Do you read a sacred text? Do you pray? And do you attend a place of worship? If you do six or seven of those things, we call you very religious. About 16% of Canadians fit that category. If you do zero or one of those things, we call you um, non-religious and you are, um, and that's about 23%. If you divide it down the middle, we're about 35% of Canadians who do at least four of those things, whereas 65% of Canadians do less than four of those things. Now, the two that almost always drop off are Bible reading and attendance at worship. So the difference between the religiously committed and the spiritually uncertain usually is the frequency of their attendance and participation in communal uh, religious life. So we have been able to create a much more granular understanding of faith in Canada. And last year, together with a colleague, we we took some of this, we created a draft paper called The Changing Landscape of Faith in Canada. And we then, my colleague and I, went to nine cities across the country. In each of these major cities, we met with 20 to 50 faith leaders. And these were of all faiths, Jewish leaders, Muslim leaders, Sikh leaders, Catholic, Christian, various denominations. And we presented the data and then invited their stories to help us nuance, understand what's going on, how do we give rise to that. I think two things really emerged in my mind from that, and that is we have in Canada a minority of people of faith. Ironically, if you're born in 1966 or later, two-thirds of Canadians have never been to a place of worship for a worship service. Wow. They're not hostile to religion. They don't know about religion. They've not been raised with a religious framework. I think often Canadians say, oh, this is a historic Christian country, and everybody who doesn't go to church is a lapsed Christian. Simply not true. The vast majority of people have no clue of what actually a Christian framework or, or, or what the gospel really represents. There is also an antagonism towards faith, to be sure, and we we measured that quite clearly So the 23% that are most negative, they're overrepresented in the younger crowd, but ironically, they're probably more boomers and older people than they are younger people who, who have a certain hostility to faith. The irony is the vast majority of them are negative towards every faith. We ask a question in our surveys, and we've done this several times now, do you think the presence of, and we name the faith, and we do eight, you know, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, 
Hindu, Catholic, Christian, evangelical, Protestant, evangelical. Do you think the presence of this group is net beneficial or harmful to society? If you are on the negative side of the spiritual spectrum, that is zero or one, you basically think every group is negative except atheists. This is in spite of the fact you can't go, you know, if, if any of your listeners are in Toronto, go down University Avenue, just take a look. Mount Zion Hospital, where do you think that comes from? We've got the, the number of Catholic hospitals. Take a look at the retirement home. Go to the social services of any city. Where would we be without the contribution of faith communities in terms of the core social services we take for granted in Canada? So there's amnesia, lack of understanding of where it comes from on the part of most Canadians. And there is a certain antagonism on the part of some. Hmm. That's a great overview of the shifting landscape of faith in Canada. I think uh, you're sharing some insights that a lot of Christians aren't aware of, at least with how accurate and up-to-date that is. Uh, I just want to follow up with you on something you said there about people's perceptions of whether this particular religious group is is a positive contribution to society or not. Uh, There was some data that came out on our American neighbors, uh, particularly in the last few years from some different research outlets showing overwhelmingly that evangelicals in the States are seen as arguably one of the more negative groups towards society there. How does that look for evangelicals and Catholics in in Canada? I think you have to draw the distinction between the stories. So first of all, just to comment on the U.S. data, I've looked at all of that data quite carefully as well. I would So first of all, I don't think there are very many people in the United States anymore who self-identify as evangelicals, and most of them who do are people who don't go to church. It's become a political term in part rather than a religious term. And so Mm -hmm. when you actually parse a lot of that data and you take a look at the church attendance numbers underneath, there's a huge difference between those who are labeled evangelicals who go to church and those who are labeled evangelicals because that's sort of an identity they were born with or they associate it with a particular political identity. I don't think that's the reality in Canada at all. So a couple of things. Um, I'm in my mid-50s. In my lifetime, I do not recall seeing a Canadian political figure put a picture of themselves in a Bible on the front page porch of their church on an election brochure. Barack Obama did that. U.S. presidential candidates until very recently were doing that. Religion in the United States has a certain civil religion sort of thing. In spite of all the stuff about separation of church and state, there is something in the U.S. ethos in terms of their understanding of religion that's very different than Canada. So I guess I would just say, first of all, I would reject any attempts to take what's there and transpose it onto the Canadian scene. I simply don't think that's accurate. However, I also recognize that we're 10% of the United States population. We, you know, airways don't have a Chinese wall at the border. Uh, We listen to, we're influenced by a lot of that. And there's a lot of perceptions about Canadian evangelicals and people of faith that are shaped by the perceptions of our American cousins down to the South. So that's, that's a bit of a dilemma in terms of how people understand it. I think in Canada, there's two things. Um, One, obviously, there are challenges that we've had regarding Indigenous issues and the Catholic Church in particular that have moved beyond the religious realm to the political realm, and that has a branding challenge for everyone along the way. 
So that muddies the water in terms of some of the challenges that the Catholic Church has faced and what that means about religion in general in Canada. I think actually, and we, we have done something, um, people may want to just Google Halo Project. I believe the website is haloproject.ca. We have partnered with various organizations to take a look at what is actually the contribution of faith to our shared life. And we discovered the fact that for every dollar on a church budget, in an urban setting, there is $3.51, I believe, if I remember the number correctly, of public good that comes from that. So just a, there's 43 metrics. I'll spare all the details of how those numbers have come up. Suffice it to say, this is done in partnership with University, University of Toronto, City of Toronto, other organizations. This is credible academic research. What it does is it basically says that if a church were to disappear, if we count all the good they do in the community, it would take the taxpayer $3.77 for every dollar that was receded on a church budget to simply replace the goods and services that churches provide to their communities. So I think the challenge in many ways is that people of faith are not, and when I say church, by the way, that was measuring interfaith. So that was Jewish synagogues, Gurdwaras. The the metric was all faith institutions. I think the challenge is that institutions of faith in Canada have not told their story well. And that's understandable. In part, it's a virtue not to let your left hand know what your right hand uh, does. You're not supposed to stand on the street corner and shout and take out ads about your good works. That's actually against the very nature of what religious good works are. But within the Canadian public narrative, the role of faith and faith institutions are grossly misunderstood and underestimated. Hmm. Well, that's well put and appreciate you uh, pointing us to that good resource and uh, the academic backing of it. Uh, one more question to respond to this: uh, the, these findings on the shifting landscape, and that is, we saw a jump from 2017 to 2022 in a spiritual openness, uncertainty among people in Canada. What do you attribute that to? It's fascinating, actually. Um, the degree to which this is the under 30 crowd, I, I believe I'm, I'm giving the numbers from the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure the number is 12% for the population as a whole. For those under 30, 18% of them were in a place of worship in the last seven days. And when we talked to religious leaders about it, all of them um, were speaking very much of a hunger that exists among the younger generation. This is a generation that by and large was raised without reference to God. It's as if God didn't exist. And, you know, as a Christian, my explanation, you know, I would go back to Augustine who says our hearts are restless until we find our hope in you. I think there is something fundamental about the human person that desires relationship and and meaning and purpose. And I think we are seeing a lot of under 30s in Canada today looking for that. Ironically, when we talk to pastors or talk to priests, talk to leaders of other faiths, all of them were experiencing a bit of a, a new surge of interest in faith from the under 30 crowd. They generally said these people are looking for religion, and they're looking for religion with substance. They don't want the app. They want the real thing. You can organize your the timing of your service by app, but they want to be there in person. They want to be digging deep in terms of theology, in terms of the history, in terms of a sense of awe and transcendence. They've been raised without it. 
and many of them are looking for it. And as I said, the number is about one and a half times more likely to be, you're one and a half times more likely to be in church on a Sunday if you're under 30 than if you are a baby boomer on a per capita basis. Wow. And that's not a story being told. That's not a story being told at all. And what was interesting is we heard parallels of that story from all different faith traditions. Interesting. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that today. would like to dig into uh, schools and faith and impact on society, perhaps at a, a later date. We'll have to do a follow-up interview. But it's been a privilege to pick your brain. Ray Pennings, Vice President of Cardis, and you can find uh, what they're up to. And you can even subscribe and be better informed on on uh, all sorts of things when you head to cardis.ca. Thanks for this, Ray. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.